The narrative we often the narrative we often listen to says we are powerless to overcome life's obstacles, that we are destined for defeat. But scripture tells us a different story. As Romans 8 and 9 fearlessly declare, we aren't just conquerors, we are more than conquerors through Jesus. Discover what it means to be more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror, that's who you are. That's who God made you to be. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. We're in the series on Romans chapters 8 and 9, and there is so much rich theology in there that has practical implications for our lives. Jason, thank you for leading that song. What a beautiful song, and you all did, did so well with that. You know, I love the words to that. We are one with God, not one in the sense that we are as God is or equal to God in any sense, but we are one with God in that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can remove his love for us. And that's what Romans 8 says. It declares with a loud, triumphal voice that we cannot be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We are with God. That is a beautiful place to be. That's the only place to be. That's the very place you were created to be in Christ with God. Romans 8 is so important. And we are in this series. I hope that you will turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're sort of in the middle, somewhat the middle of chapter 8. We're going to start in about verse 12. But it's helpful to have the scripture in front of you. So if you have a Bible or maybe on your device, turn over to Romans chapter 8. You know, every family has its own culture, doesn't it? Your family has its own way of doing things, its own way of life, own way of doing family doing marriage and parenting and, and, and all of that. And, and a part of that is traditions and rituals and celebrations and holidays and all of those things that are so important to us. They are important because they create a sense of identity within our families. It sets our families apart from other families. We do things this way. Those rituals and traditions create a sense of closeness among us I'm always interested in what families do and how they do family and what traditions they have and what rituals they observe when I teach Christian family out at Oklahoma Christian I always have the students do an assignment telling about their traditions and rituals and patterns of interaction and I'm always so interested to read those papers and learn about what families do and even sometimes quite honestly to get some ideas like that's a good idea for example, one student wrote about at Thanksgiving, instead of having turkey every year, they have steak. I thought, now that's something I can sign up for right there. Having fillets on Thanksgiving? Yeah. Well, and as he explained it, he said his great-grandfather ran a cattle ranch. So it makes perfect sense, why wouldn't you have beef? I could just imagine those cows out there, like the Chick-fil-A cows, eat more turkey on Thanksgiving. They're holding up their signs, right? One student talked about how they do a family talent show every year, and everyone has to get up and do something. And they, that's a big thing for them. One young lady talked about a rather odd routine that her mother always did. This young lady said that when she would sometimes wake up at one or two in the morning, she would often see her mother standing at the doorway of her bedroom, just looking into her bedroom, staring at her, as she is lying in her bed. She's not saying anything. 
She's just watching her, almost like a new parent does with a baby. You new parents remember that? You just watch your baby sleep, making sure he or she's still breathing. You're just admiring, observing, enjoying the peace and quiet. So she's just standing there at the doorway watching her daughter, and her daughter said, Mom, what are you doing? Why do you do this? And her mom said, I know you're not going to be here very long. You're going to be off to college. You're going to be off starting your life. I want to see you while you're here. I want to watch you. I want to savor these moments. Now, that's what her mom told her. The truth is, we all, we parents know, she was just making sure this girl didn't sneak out, you know, when she was a teenager, (laughs) making sure she was where she was supposed to be. One student wrote about every week, every Friday night, they had pizza and burp night. They would order a lot of pizza, buy a lot of Mountain Dew. You can see where this is going, right? They would sit around the table and have a great time. It was the only time the kids could burp at the table and not get in trouble. So you can imagine they enjoyed that. And if you know Jed Davis, ask him if he still does that with his family today. (laughs) We all have these traditions, these routines, these rituals that we do in our families, and they are extremely important. Like I said, they create that sense of identity. They bring us closer together. It is, it is our inside language, our inside jokes. It's our way of doing things. But it's not just rituals and traditions. In every family, there are expectations. There are rules. Sometimes these rules are spoken. Sometimes they're unspoken. In some families, I suspect, maybe they're even written down, but many times they're unwritten. But there are expectations for everyone in the family how you behave, what you do, what is appropriate, what is not appropriate. For example, when you sit down at the dinner table, how do you decide where people sit? Well, people always sit in the same spot, right? You probably don't have name cards out. Maybe you've never even had a discussion about it. It's just people sit in the same spot. Just like when you come in this room, where do you go? To your same spot. It's just understood, it's an expectation. And if someone is sitting at your place at the table, what do you say? Hey, that's my seat. Just like some of you do at church when someone's sitting in your pew. These expectations. What about concerning time? We are a family who is always on time. Can your family say that? (laughs) Some of you are still trying to get here. You're coming coming in, so you're saying, we are a family who is never on time. And that's just an expectation. It's just a part of the culture of your family. Every family has a culture. What about chores? Who does what? Maybe you have that written out. Maybe you've had discussions. You probably have. And people know what they're expected to do. But even more importantly, what about the morals and the values? If your family were to have a crest, and maybe you do, most of us probably don't, but if you were to have a crest, What would some of the words on that crest be? Some of the symbols. What are some of the things that are most important to you? Our family. We are a family who tells the truth. We don't lie. We don't deceive. We are honest. Maybe honesty would be on your family crest. That is important to your family, and and that is a part of your culture. Or maybe it's we show affection. Maybe that's important to your family, and we We make that a value in our family. Or maybe we're a praying family. We spend a lot of time in prayer, not just at the table, but we pray together and we pray for each other. Those things help shape our culture. They are expectations. They are rules, if you will. 
people in this family will live this way, will do these things. Well, in God's family, there is a culture. There is a culture that, that God is building among us, in us, through us. And this culture is informed by the values of God's kingdom, not by anything else, certainly not by the values of this world. It is the values of the kingdom of God that inform and shape the culture of the family of God. And as children of God, there are some things that we do that make us unique, uniquely a part of the family of God. There are even some traditions and rituals. Now, we don't necessarily call them that, but if someone on the outside was observing us, they would say, what you're doing right now, that's a ritual. What you did a few minutes ago when you took that cracker and you drank that little bit of juice, that is a ritual. And again, we probably wouldn't use that language because it's so much more to us than a ritual, but in one sense it is. It's something we do on a regular basis and it is identity shaping. It is a part of who we are. It's a part of what is important to us. But in the family of God, there are also expectations of how we live, of what we value, of how we see the world, how we view others, how we see ourselves, how we see our purpose in this world. There are expectations as a part of this culture. And these expectations, these perspectives, these practices, they don't make you part of God's family. They show that you are part of God's family. And so here in Romans 8, as Paul continues to contrast spirit and flesh, life and death, he talks about family. And he talks about the expectations God has for his children. In the first part of Romans 8, he's talking about, Paul's talking about what God has done for us. And now he gets into what God expects from us. And he uses a word that is an interesting word that makes us maybe cringe a little bit. It's the word obligation. Let's see what Paul says in verse 12 of Romans 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, he's using that family language, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Again, you see that contrast there between life and death, spirit and flesh. He uses this word obligation. It can be translated indebtedness. And maybe your version, your translation says, we are not indebted to the world or we are not indebted to the flesh. We all understand what that means to be indebted to someone. If you go buy a car and you take a loan to buy that car, or if you buy a house and you take a mortgage for that house, you're going to sign a lot of papers. And all of those papers are basically saying one thing. You are taking on a responsibility. You have an obligation to pay for this car or to pay for this house. You are responsible. That is your role. And you have to do what you have agreed to do as a part of this transaction. But in God's kingdom, in the family of God, our indebtedness to God is not about a transaction. It is more about transformation. And there is a big difference. You see, it's not about what we have to do. 
Sometimes when people are considering being a Christian or they're observing Christianity, one of the first things they say is, well, do I have to give up this? Or do I have to do this? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to? Being in the family of God is not about what you have to do. It's about responding to what God has done. It's a response. It's not about a legalistic duty. It's about a love that compels us to have a different perspective, to have a different way of life, to value different things than the world values, to treat people differently than the world treats them. All of that comes as a response to what God has done for us. We are compelled to live in a way that honors him and honors the family of God. And if we ever get those things confused, basically what we're doing is we're shifting the power of salvation from God to ourselves. We are taking it from God. If my mindset is what I do and don't do will determine my salvation, I gotta do more, I gotta be better, then what I'm saying is, God, I don't really trust you and your grace and your sovereignty and your justice. I'm gonna take that from you and now it's gonna be up to me. I'm gonna shoulder that responsibility. I don't know about you, but that's not where I wanna be. I don't trust myself. I, I can't be good enough. There's not, a, there's not a chance that's going to happen. I just fall on my face at the mercy of God. And as I fall on the mercy of God, I want to live for him. Respond to him in that way. That's why the image of family is such a good metaphor. And it's used all throughout scripture. It's such a good metaphor for our connection to God and our connection to each other. We are part of God's family. That is significant. That is meaningful. And as we said earlier, families have expectations. Families value certain things. We have certain ways of doing things and not doing things. And all of these things in the family of God are rooted in love and commitment. Take marriage, for example. That's a part of family. Take marriage. When a bride and a groom stand up in front of family and friends and God, they say their vows and they say, I do. What are they doing? Are they entering into a contract, a transaction? Boy, I hope not. Because there's going to be days where you don't want to keep your end of the bargain. No, they're not entering into a transaction. Now, they are going to sign a paper, but it's more for the state to recognize them as married. They are standing before God, their future mate, their family and friends, and they're saying, I commit to you. I am obligated, there's that word, I am obligated to keep my vows. I am obligated, I take responsibility to do what Jesus said in Matthew 19, let nothing come between us. And that obligation, that responsibility is rooted in what? In love and commitment. Think about another example from family, one that Paul is going to use in just a moment, adoption. Many families here, many of you have fostered, have adopted children into your home, into your family. Why do you do that? Because you care, because you love, because you want someone to have a better life. It's the same reason God adopts us into his family. And how do those children who are well-loved respond when they are adopted? Well, there's probably a time, certainly a time of adjustment for everyone. 
for them, for the other ones in the family. There's certainly a time of adjustment. But if children are well-loved, they will typically respond with love as they are assimilated into the family. That is the nature of family. They recognize what has been done for them. They're grateful. They're thankful. And so they respond in a way that says, I'm a part of this family now. And as a part of this family, that means something. It means we don't do this, or we do this, or this is important to us, or this is what the expectation is. This is the culture that we are building. You have a new name. You have a new family. You have a new future, a new way of life. So here's Paul's point here in this text. His point is this. Your life will bear witness to your greatest love. Basically, that's what he says. If, if you love your heavenly father and you find your place in the family of God and you respond from that love that you have for God, then your life will show that. You will put to death, to use his words, the misdeeds of the body. You will avoid sin. Now, that doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but you will not live according to the values and the ways of the world. However, if you love the world more than you love Jesus, or you love self more than you love Jesus, or you love anything more than you love Jesus, then sooner or later, your life, your choices, your words, your actions, your behaviors, all of those things will bear witness to who it is or what it is you really love. That's what it comes down to. You and I probably wouldn't necessarily agree with everything he wrote or said, but I think J.I. Packer is so right on the target with this comment about the family of God. Here's what he says. He says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. He continues, If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If I don't embrace and understand my place in the family of God as a child of God, then I'm going to miss what it means to be God's own, a son or daughter of the king. And I'm going to continue to live my life on my own, apart, separated from the family. I may talk the talk, yeah, I'm a part of God's family, but my life, remember, will bear witness to my greatest love. And if my greatest love isn't truly my heavenly Father and Jesus my Savior, then my life will show that. And so will yours. For those who are in the family of God, we have an obligation, an indebtedness to God. A response, an opportunity. Why? Because he has welcomed us into his family. He has graciously said, I want to adopt you as my children. I want to give you a new name, a new family, a new life, a new hope, a new future. Paul continues in verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. 
And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Paul is holding up this beautiful image of family to help us understand our identity, to help us understand the obligation we have as a child of God. But there's another image he's holding up simultaneously, and for us as modern-day readers, it's really easy to miss. For his first century, especially Jewish audience, they would have not missed it. It's this image of the Exodus. There are echoes of the Exodus in what Paul is saying here in Romans 8. You can see it with each element. First of all, as he talks about us being children of God, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. In fact, we sometimes today, when we refer to the Israelites, what do we call them sometimes? The children of Israel. God's children. And God's children were led by God. Paul says we are led by the Spirit. They were led by God. Do you remember how they were led as they were coming out of Egypt by a pillar of cloud at day and a pillar of fire at night. God was with them. He was leading them. From what was he leading them? From what was he delivering them? From slavery. From slavery, literally, from being slaves in Egypt. He was bringing them into freedom. Specifically, he was giving them a new inheritance a new land, the land of promise, the promised land, a new home, a new future, new hope, a new start, transformation. You see, that was their story. That is our story. And what was Israel's, the children of Israel, what was their greatest struggle as God was leading them out of slavery into their destiny, into the land of promise? What was their biggest struggle? Man, they got defiant they got stubborn, they got independent. They wanted to go back. That's what they kept saying. We want to go back. We want to go back to Egypt. Why? Because at least back then, we knew what to expect. They wanted to go back to what was familiar, what was known, what was certain. It wasn't good. There was no life there. There was no hope there. There was no future there, but it was understood and it was certain. And they said, we want to go back. God knows the human heart like any good parent knows the nature the tendencies of their children God knows us and he knows that we always want to go back we want to go back to being slaves to sin it is our sinful human nature to gratify self and we continually like the children of Israel say hey why don't we go back to where it's known where I know what to expect, where it's socially acceptable. But was it good? Well, no. I mean, maybe immediately there's immediate gratification. But no, it's not good. There's no hope. There's no future. And we insist on going back. I believe that's why Paul says in verse 12 that we have no obligation to the flesh. We don't owe our sinful nature anything. We don't owe the world anything. 
You think the world has your best interest at heart? Not a chance. You think the people that you work so hard to impress want what's best for you? I doubt it. You think even your sinful nature, your sinful desires truly want what's best for you? No, they seek immediate gratification. They address what you want, not what you need. So you owe the world nothing. You certainly owe Satan nothing. The only thing that we should give to our sinful desires is a funeral, Paul says. You remember what he said in Romans 8? Put to death the misdeeds of the body. Put them to death. He uses this language time and time again. For example, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. He says, put it to death. That's not who you are. That's not the culture of the family of God. That's not the things that we value. Whatever the world values, you are not going to find those on the family crest when God's family and God's household. So put them to death. You see, to experience new life, there must be death death to anything that separates us anything that comes between us and God isn't that the call of Jesus if you want to follow Jesus what did Jesus say you must do Luke chapter 9 he says if you want to follow me if you want to be my disciple you've got to deny yourselves take up your cross and then come follow me what's he talking about there he's talking about death You must die to self, deny yourself. Taking up a cross is not just a symbol. It is an action of self-denial, ultimate self-denial, dying to self. Put to death anything that comes between you and God. We get so confused, though. We read that, we hear that. We've heard it time and time again. Get rid of sin, put to death sin. And we think, okay, it's up to me i got to work harder. i got to try harder. i got to do better. i got to be stronger. How's that working out for you? How is human willpower working against Satan, against temptation, against sin? My guess is it's not. And so then we get frustrated and we think, I've got to even do better. What does he say? He says, you are not on your own you've been adopted into the family of God you have brothers and sisters even better than that you have a loving father as the echoes of the exodus suggest God is at work in our story just as he was in their story so what does that mean well first of all it means that we have the spirit's help do you remember what he said there in verse 14 What distinguishes the children of God? They are led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit helps us. Your own willpower, it won't won't do anything. It won't do much. Your own sense of resolve, your own personal strength, that's not the answer. The proper response to temptation and sin is not to try harder. It is to fully surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not to give a greater effort. It is to give your life over to God. 
to say, God, I, I, I can't do it. I need you. I need your spirit to do it. Remember last week as we looked at the first part of Romans 8, these two laws at work, the law of sin and death that we all deal with, this controlling force in our world, in our lives. But it is superseded, it is counteracted by the law of the Spirit that if you remember, he says, gives life. The law of the Spirit supersedes the law of sin and death. You have the Spirit dwelling in you. If you're a child of God, that's what he says right here in Romans chapter 8. For those children of Israel, life certainly wasn't always easy. As God brought them out of Egypt, what happened? Pharaoh and his people started chasing them. And then in front of the children of Israel, there were obstacles to overcome. Life will not be easy. And so he also reminds us that as children of God, we will share in the sufferings of Christ. We share in his sufferings. Expect the world to be hostile towards anyone or anything that opposes its values. Don't expect an easy life as a follower of Jesus because comfort and happiness and satisfaction, those are not the highest values of the family of God. As I said earlier, those aren't going to make the crest on the wall. But we also need to know this, just as we share in his sufferings, just as this world will sometimes persecute followers of Jesus, and in these days in different ways, sometimes subtle ways, sometimes economic ways, opportunity, sometimes isolation, alienation, but it happens because we live in a world that, that doesn't like someone or something to oppose its values. But just as we share in his sufferings, whatever those look like, he reminds us as children of God, you also share in his glory. In fact, he calls us heirs. There is an inheritance. And just as the children of Israel were brought into this land of promise, this new home, this new future, this new life, he says you have life. You have a new home. You have a new future, a new inheritance. Life with God, life for God, abundant life eternal life so what does it mean to be a child of God it means so much it means you are led by the spirit out of slavery to sin that you will share in the sufferings of Christ but you will also share in the glory that you have an inheritance that's why God has made you his child but even more than that it means you have a loving father a father who loves you so much and that's why paul puts this phrase in there in verse 15 and by him we cry abba father aramaic for father it's a term that is a very emotional term maybe you've heard before that it means daddy well that's not exactly right in this context they had no space for the word daddy but if that helps you understand the intimate nature of this relationship, then that, that's okay. Because that's exactly what this word is. It's an intimate relationship, Abba, Father. And Paul uses it because he wants us to identify with and connect with Jesus, who also used this phrase. Do you remember in Gethsemane, 
in Mark chapter 14, when he's pouring out his heart to his heavenly Father. Abba, Father. Father, Father. This emotion-filled heart cry. This intimate relationship between Father and Son that ultimately ends with the words, not my will, but your will be done. Writer David Prince tells this story. He says, I know a family who adopted an older child from an unspeakable, horrific orphanage in another country. He said, when they brought her home, one of the things they discussed with her was their expectations of her. And one of those expectations was that every day she would make sure her room was clean. Well, she heard that expectation and she actually fixated on it. She interpreted it through her own frame of reference, which was this awful experience in the orphanage. And so every morning when her parents would come into her room, her room was spotless. Everything was put exactly where it was supposed to be. There was no dust, there was no dirt, there was no clutter. The room was perfect. And she, this young lady, would sit on the edge of the bed and she would say, my room is clean, can I stay? Do you still love me? And it broke the hearts of her parents. And it took a long time, and it took much reassurance. But over time, this young lady realized that she was not an outsider trying to earn her way into the family. And she heard her parents' words, even their correction and discipline, as the loved child she was, with a place in that home, with a place in that family. It made all the difference. It made all the difference. So often, I think we sit on the edge of our beds. We look up to heaven and we say, God, I'm doing the best I can. Look at all the good things I've done. Is it enough? Can I stay? Am I still your child? Do you still love me? And I think sometimes God's heart is breaking. He's saying, Of course I love you. Of course I love you. You are my child. You belong to me. Don't ever question my love for you. Just like the song we sang, just like later in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Of course he loves you. So just embrace who he made you to be, his child living in his family. And that means something. It means a lot of things. He has expectations. You and I have an obligation to use Paul's word. To live in such a way that brings honor to God, our Heavenly Father, and honor to his family. That does not misrepresent his family. You are a child of God. Dearly loved by God. If you aren't in Christ, however, you're actually not a child of God. Do you remember what he said? Child of God are led by the Spirit of God. We receive the Holy Spirit when we surrender our lives in faith, confession, baptism, putting on Christ, receiving forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, maybe it's time for you to begin that journey to really get serious about that. You've heard about it. You've read about it. Maybe you've even talked about it. Maybe it's time to really explore what that means. And if you're a child or a teenager, maybe it means with your parents or maybe with, if you're you know, older, maybe a peer, someone in your 
men's group or women's group or Bible class or one of us, please take the next step in that journey. And if we can pray for you, if we can encourage you, support you in some way, let us do that. In just a minute, we're going to stand up and we're going to sing and you can come down to the front. We'll pray for you. We also, if you prefer, we have a couple of shepherds and their wives that'll be in the parlor, a room right behind me. It's a nice private place for you to go and just be encouraged. They'll just encourage you. They'll pray for you. Maybe that's what you need today. We want to be here for you. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blood. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, I come broken to be mended, I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms, praise God. Just 